I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome, my friends. This is Theology Unplugged, and thank you for joining us. We've got uh, in studio Tim and Sam and myself, Michael, and we are going to continue our discussion here today on an invitation to Calvinism. That's right. We're inviting people to Calvinism uh, because we think it is important enough for an invitation. That's right. Right? This isn't just an explanation. This is an invitation. Yeah. Um, and we've been clear that, that we don't believe that this is an issue where if you are not a Calvinist, you're not a Christian. If you're not a Calvinist, you won't go to heaven. That, that we're not saying that at all. What we're saying, though, is that we believe that this is the best framework and the best way to approach what God has revealed to us through his word. All right. You're jumping right into it, aren't you? Well, I'm just, just reviewing a little bit. Issues well, I go ahead. About. Yeah. Feel, uh, feel free. All right. Well, we're coming to you from the Credo House here. Some of you guys are familiar with uh, our ministry, uh, a lot of the things that we do. We, you can always go to reclaimingthemind.org or credohouse.org and check us out and see the other things we do. You may be getting this on iTunes. I imagine most of you are getting us through iTunes. That's what we see in the background. But also you can come and see our blog and see the various ministries that we have that is de- that are devoted to theological development, primarily for lay people, but also for the local church, we create curriculum. One of the things that we do here in the ministry, guys, I, I know that uh, you guys may be familiar with this, is um, uh, help people deal with belief. I mean, we're called Credo House. We're changing our name slowly, and it's mm-hmm. taken some time to Credo House Ministries, or Credo House Ministries. That's a proper pronunciation, but I like Credo. It just feels better. Mm-hmm. So, Credo House Ministries, Credo means I believe, mm-hmm. and our ultimate goal is to help people to believe. And one of the things that we do is we get a lot of people that uh, that either call here, email, uh, contact us somehow that are really struggling with their belief. And I'm not saying people who are coming to Christianity for the first time and saying, hey, I'm one to become a Christian, but I'm really struggling with my belief and I don't can you answer these questions. These are people that have been Christians for a long time grown up in the church, maybe they're children of the church, and uh, turning uh, 18, 20, 22 years old, and really beginning to ask a lot of questions and struggling with their belief. Now, the thing that's, if somebody were to come to me and say, Michael, over the last few years of, of doing this ministry, what is the thing that has stood out most? What are the thing, what's the thing that surprised you most? What's the thing that's different that you would not have expected? And this is it, that people are struggling so bad in the background sometimes with their belief. And and what is common is that these people will contact me and they will be searching to reestablish, to gain a foothold on something that they're losing. And sometimes it's through a circumstance that they've gone through, but a lot of times it's through meeting up with the new atheists or... um, uh, some argument that they've never heard and they go to their church and their church says, you know, you just need to have faith and that's what faith is about. Don't ask questions, just have faith. And these people are really having a hard time because they're trying to use their minds, trying to think through their faith and they're not able to find a foothold. A bunch of these, and I'm not saying this, you know, there's just one out there that that I'm using this as an illustration. I literally mean a bunch of these that I've contacted are on the brink of suicide and they tell me they're about to commit suicide. 
That's how hard, that's how bad it is hurting them. I've even had a pastor that has called recently, had a pastor email me last week, uh, same situation. Now, he didn't say he was on the brink of suicide, but he says, I don't know what I'm doing in the pulpit anymore. I don't even believe, and I want to believe. That's why, all of that to say this, uh, this coming Tuesday night, we are going to be having a forum um, that you can come to. If you're really wrestling with your faith, if you're really having these issues, some people don't want to tell it. I mean, this pastor, just don't tell anybody. You know, let, let me just talk to you. Uh, some people don't. You can come onto this online forum and engage anonymously. You can come in and you don't have to engage anonymously. But we have created Tuesday night online. All you have to do is click on one button and all of a sudden you're in a room. And this room is going to be a safe environment for you to be able to come and express these things because I know that there's a time whenever you just really need to not find affirmation in your doubts, but find somebody who will hold your hand in your doubts and help you through them. And they'll be talking with us, right? With talking you and with me? us, me and you. Yep. We'll be there. We'll be there what time? Uh, it will be on Central Time, 8 to 9, so that'll be 9 to 10 Eastern. Okay. And then how, how can someone find about it? Probably the best way is to go to our blog, and on there there's there's a post that you did yesterday. Well, there's a post that you did on on Wednesday, uh, February yeah, 23rd. Yeah, so scroll down a little bit on the yeah. blog and you'll see, uh, I forget what it's called, uh, Dealing with Doubt. Dealing with Doubt. Dealing L- with doubt. Look for that post. It's a recent post on our blog, and then that will give you instructions. Ultimately, you'll email Michael. Uh, the reason we're making this a little hard to get to in some ways is we don't want this room to be filled with people who just want to fight, and we don't want this room just filled with a new atheist, perhaps, that might have an agenda of just wanting to instill a lot more uh, confusion into this. What we want are people who legitimately want to discuss this, pray to together mm-hmm. and uh, and hopefully we can walk with you through these yes. things so if, if you've been someone who you're experiencing doubt now or you're you're going through a time where you maybe you're feeling better but you you go up and down up and down um or you've been through this before and you feel like you've recovered and you feel like you can help people this is for christians who are dealing with their doubts so if you have a family up. member or friend that might not be listening to this this broadcast but you know who they are uh, please contact them please let them know about this on tuesday night uh we would love to have as many people as possible yeah. that we can interact with. And the last thing we want to do is excite doubt in anybody and so it's going to be structured in such a way we're really trying to build faith mm-hmm. credo I believe. All right, guys, we're continuing our invitation here to Calvinism, invitation to um, a a set of uh, beliefs that we believe are very important to the Christian life. Last time, we ended our discussion while talking about the acronym TULIP. We were on the U. Uh, Tim, what's the U? The U is Unconditional Election. With the idea that that God has, we believe the Bible teaches that God elects people uh, for salvation based on nothing that they have done, no work, unconditional. So God does not look into the future and say, "Oh, look at Michael Patton. Oh, look, you know, look at that fine young man that trusted Christ as his savior. I'll elect that fine young man." Instead, based on no uh, foreknowledge of God, looking into the future, that unconditionally He elects you for salvation. And this is rather controversial, Sam, uh, the whole concept of unconditional election. Why is it controversial? Well, I suppose for a number of reasons. One is because um, we like to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we like to believe that 
Um, our faith is ultimately the product of our own making. Um, we are a self-reliant people, uh, and uh, we don't like one reason why unconditional election I got suppose is so controversial is because we don't like the tea of tulip. We don't want to acknowledge that we're totally depraved. Uh, we don't want to acknowledge that we are utterly and absolutely dependent upon the grace of God for salvation, plus the fact that oftentimes in the way that unconditional election is is portrayed, it sounds to people as if God is being unfair, that he is bestowing on one sinner what he withholds from another. And that is true, but there's a important little phrase that we need to include there. He's bestowing on one hell-deserving sinner what he's withholding from another hell-deserving sinner. If we don't understand that we are all hell-deserving sinners and that God owes us nothing but eternal damnation, then unconditional election will never make any sense. Um, so it's not as if God owes us or is in our debt and he chooses only to pay one and not another. Uh, if that were the case, God would be unjust. It would be unfair. But the fact is, the only thing uh, that God owes us, the only thing that justice would require is that we all be eternally consigned uh, to separation from him forever. And the fact that he chooses to bestow life on some, but not all. Um, it strikes us as odd, but I think it is clearly taught in Scripture. It is not unfair or unjust. Uh, as we've said before, uh, some get justice, some get mercy. Nobody gets injustice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That God may be the just and the justifier. Big deal in the Bible is uh, retaining God's justice. Um uh, never can we speak of God as being unjust, and I think any thoughts of injustice uh, uh, leads us completely away from a biblical view of God. And so as we move forward in this, that is not in any sense what uh, unconditional election would say. We talked last time about kind of the history of it and, and uh, where it came from. We tried to say we're not rooting ourselves in the 16th century or in Calvin. I'd like to say that our roots go through the Reformation, but they are not in the Reformation. Um, and we, we talked about how our roots go back to the Bible, and we want to talk about the Bible with regards to unconditional election, because that's the most important source. We do believe that the Bible is the only infallible and the final and the ultimate source for all of our beliefs. And so I, I don't think, Sam, one of the things that's funny is whenever you talk about this concept of unconditional election, a lot of people... Um, we'll, we'll approach this as if, as if this is something we've come up with. This is something we are, uh, devising ourselves as, as Calvinists and making it up. But who would come up with something like this? Mm-hmm. I mean, really? Yeah, no, yeah. The, the, the fallen human mind, uh, is not inclined, uh, to attribute all of salvation to God wholly and unconditionally. So, no, it's not something that, uh, a number of individuals sat around in a room and thought, hey, let's come up with a new doctrine that will appear unjust and unfair and offend uh, our senses and also the senses of, of other people as well. Um, certainly, if it were not taught in Scripture as clearly as I believe it is, uh, I, I wouldn't embrace it. I certainly wouldn't have um, come up with the idea. No. No, it's not something you naturally come up with. Uh, I think, uh, I guess we could say that... 
there are certain passages of scripture that stand out with regards to mm-hmm. this issue of unconditional election that that seem to teach it explicitly mm-hmm. more than others and then once we have those passages and we formulate a theology based upon those passages i think it does begin to lighten up other parts of scripture that might implicitly teach it and, and we've got to find a way to reconcile these things but i want to talk about those passages that seem to clearly teach unconditional election for those people who are trying to receive this invitation and they believe the bible and they just say show it to me in the bible let's go there okay okay um now obviously i think the first place you'd go to is romans romans chapter 9 that's the first place where i became a i, I guess uh, an advocate or a believer or somebody who believed in in unconditional election but romans chapter 9 where paul has um uh, romans is the the gospel uh i think it's the the most systematic of all the books of the Bible with regards to theology. I think it's Paul's magnum opus, if you will. He's writing to a group of people, a place he has never been to, which which I don't know about you guys, that, that's very important for me. Uh, it takes out a little bit of the subjectivity whenever he's writing to other places like the Corinthians. He's dealing with problems, and you've got to interpret it in light of those problems and mm. see through those things. When we're talking to the Romans here, it's Paul's. Paul says, hey, I've oftentimes planned to come there, have been prevented so far because I want to give to you the gospel. Um, and then he just goes in and starts giving them the gospel. And in this, he goes through from chapters 1 through 3. He's talking about uh, the universal need of salvation. Chapters 3 through 7, he's talking about salvation by faith. Chapter 8, he talks about sanctification and how it is that we are sanctified. And then in chapter 9, he does something where it seems like he takes a long, deep breath, if you will, and begins to deal with a problem that I think he has dealt with throughout his entire ministry. Uh, people asking questions and, and raising their hands and, and saying, hey, yeah, Paul, what about this? And in chapter 9, what we seem to have at the very beginning is Paul saying, what about the Jews? Uh, you ended chapter 8 by saying nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from his salvation. You are secure in him, neither height nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come. Angels, forces, demons, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then I can just see somebody's hand go up, you know, Paul, you know, in the background, Paul, over here, over here. Didn't the Jewish people get the same promises that you just said we get as believers? And then that's Romans chapter 9, that's Romans chapter 10, that's Romans chapter 11. And let me deal with the Jewish people, and let me deal with how God's promises are secure, even though it doesn't look like they may be with regards to the Jewish people. Am I getting this right, Sam? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it, it is, uh, as you said, a problem that Paul had to address and that he wrestled with in his own heart that... Uh, that why, if God is true to his word, and he always honors his covenant promises, are so few of my kinsmen according to the flesh saved? That's what he's asking himself. Why is it that my brethren, my fellow Jews, are in unbelief if God is in fact true to his covenant word? 
uh, has God's promise failed? And of course, Romans 9 is designed to say, no, it hasn't failed. And the way that Paul goes about um, demonstrating that is to, is to make the point that it was never God's sovereign and eternal purpose to save every ethnic Israelite, but rather only those on whom he had set his electing love. There was, it was the remnant um, who were the uh, objects and the recipients of God's saving affection. So um, that is basically how Romans 9 through 11 opens up. It is designed to answer that question, and it's even more than a question. It's, a, it's a, in some sense, an indictment of God's uh, reliability. Can we trust this promise that you've just articulated in Romans 8 when it seems as if so many of the covenant chosen people of God have, are still in unbelief and are rejecting the Messiah? He says, it is not, Romans 9, 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's key. God's word has not failed. His covenant has not failed. His promises has not failed. Why? Because not all of Israel are true Israel who are descended from Israel. So if you could draw a big circle, folks, in your mind right now, to draw a big circle and mark that ethnic Israel. Mm-hmm. And then what he does is he begins to draw smaller circles from within. Mm -hmm. And he says, notice here, not all are children of the promise, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. So ethnic Israel, big circle, but don't don't get that wrong because there's there's a certain covenant within that that is through Isaac. Not all of Abraham's children, but through Isaac. And then he narrows it down further. Not only this, verse 10, but there was a Rebekah when she had conceived twins by our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, but so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of him who calls, or not not because of work, but because of him who calls, it was said the older will serve the younger. So we've got a smaller circle within that circle that says, this is who the promise, this is who the covenant is made with. Mm-hmm. This is God's choice. This is God's covenant with a particular group within this larger group. And not based on their works. This is just his choice. Yeah. And not based upon anything that they have done before they have done anything good or bad. You can't say, well, he's drawn these smaller circles within this larger circle and choosing specific Israelites because some of them were better than others. I mean, that's out of the equation, folks. Especially if you read the lives of some of these people, you would say, these aren't better people. No, no, they would have looked ahead in time. God would have looked ahead in time and seen all of us, and we'd be in big trouble. <laughs> Jacob was a real stinker. Yeah, he, he was. I mean, the... the, the the Jacob I loved. People struggle with the statement in Romans nine thirteen. Esau I hated. I understand that. It's the Jacob I loved that makes no sense to me. Yeah, that's the baffling part. Mm. And then, of course, immediately thereafter in verse fourteen, Paul anticipating the objection that's going to come back to him. But Paul, uh, this seems to be unjust that God would set His saving love upon one without regard to His works and withhold it from another without regard to his works, that just seems unfair. Isn't God required to do for every hell-deserving sinner what he does for one hell-deserving sinner? And Paul says, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And then he begins to, to, to point out that it is of the very essence of who God is 
that he has the right to shower his saving compassion on whomever he wills and to hearten whomever he wills. All deserve to be hardened. All deserve to be cast aside. The fact that God sovereignly chooses not to do that, but in fact to elect out from among that mass of hell-deserving sinners some on whom he will put his saving compassion, uh, Paul says, is, is part of the essence of what it is to be God. Uh, that's he's he's in essence saying this is what it means for God to be God, and therefore who are you, O oh man, to answer back to Him and say why have you done this? And I think for me, guys, if, for me, guys, this is this is the thing that gets me is exactly what Sam said the objection. Yeah, because he, here's the thing that we do as we discuss these things and we invite people to Calvinism, and I get in emails from people and I get objections from people and I get yeah buts and I understand all the yeah buts and I understand all the confusion. I, I really, really do. I empathize with them quite a bit. But the problem is, is that. These objections themselves show us, demonstrate to us that this is what we are telling you, what we are inviting you to, what this unconditional election is. It is something that is going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. It is going to cause us to raise our hands and say, yeah, but. And it's also interesting that the objections are, um, are addressed and answered in the way that Paul does. If Paul were not saying what we have just contended he is saying, he would have simply responded by saying, oh, no, no, wait a second. You misunderstood me. Of course I'm not suggesting that God is unconditionally putting his electing love on some but not others. No, no, no. Uh, let me back up. Let me. You, you've gone down the wrong path here. Uh, in fact, twice uh, in Romans 9, this hypothetical objector um, voices his protest. And on two occasions, Paul could have easily have put the debate to rest and said, no, uh, you've misunderstood, that's not what I'm saying. But he, voice, he puts this objection in the mouth of this hypothetical objector. And then in both time, uh, times, both occasions, he proceeds to respond to it. So uh, by the fact that Paul does not... Um, uh, correct the what what the Armenian would say is the misunderstanding of what he's arguing for seems to me clearly to indicate that the objector understands perfectly well what Paul is saying, and Paul and, and then is drawing the wrong conclusion from it. The objector says, "I understand what you're saying, Paul. That means God is unjust." Paul says, "No, God is not unjust, and here's why." Um, so even later. Paul, again, voices the objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And that's what we would say. Exactly. That is exactly what we would say, only if our interpretation is unconditional. Exactly. Yeah. So well, the, and, and verse 20 is the answer of one of the greatest questions in the universe, is uh, why does God still find fault? If, you, if this, you only had Romans 9 up to 19, you would be, you would be panting after verse 20 for the answer yeah. of the universe. And the answer is, who are you to question these things? Who are you to inquire of God? Such, that's, such that's a vast answer. God, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, in many ways he's saying, don't, you know, who are you to come so close into my throne? Own room in many ways and uh, question my goodness, my justice, my love, and uh, and so I mean that is Paul's answer is in many ways a non-answer, but is is in no way stepping away from his position of unconditional election. Yeah, because as you said, it, 
That is precisely the objection that all of us at some point raise. Paul, wait a minute. If what you're saying is true, then on what grounds does God condemn some uh, while he grants saving and uh, grace to others? Uh, it seems as if he would be unjust in doing so. Um, and Paul's response, as you said, Tim, is in essence, look, God is God and you're not. Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump of a vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use to the praise of his glorious grace and also to the manifestation of his holiness and justice? And uh, the answer to that is yes, but we don't want to concede that point. But that's Paul's response. Uh, God, being sovereign, has the right to do with hell-deserving sinners what it pleases him to do and what he has determined will bring most glory and honor to his own name. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs or, or really who strives himself, but on God who has mercy. And, you know, I, I, I look out to those people and I say, okay, there's a lot of people here who are listening to this for the first time trying to consider Calvinism. And they've got these, uh, these, these questions that are coming up and they're starting this time of wrestling. And, and I, I promise you, folks, this is a time of wrestling that you're going to go through. You're going to wrestle with God. And I'm not telling you not to wrestle. I'm just telling you to not to look at this and do the same thing as the objector and then walk away from the God who is the potter and put him on the judgment seat uh, and, and put a human tribunal together and say, I have deemed this unworthy of a God that I want to follow. Therefore, I'm going to adjust and find another way to understand this so that I can love God. And that's the last thing we want to do, folks. Um, what, what we want to do is to look at this, and I understand the objections. I understand this guy in Romans chapter 9. I understand you. And here's where I come. Here's how I deal with it in the very end. Number one, like Sam said at the very beginning, is that we all deserve hell. Mm-hmm. But I also take this and I say, listen, if this doesn't fit in with my current conception of a loving God who is merciful, who who creates out of his love and out of his grace and out of his goodness and a saving God, what I do is I say, God, here's what you've told me to do. Put my hand over my mouth. And at that point... I'll put my hand over my mouth trusting you and trusting that the divine tribunal that I set up, because I'm always tempted to set up tribunals and put him on the stand, whether it be things in my life that go on, you shouldn't have allowed this, or things in theology that I might not like whenever I first see it. And I say, God, you are God, and if you say you are good and you are just and you are loving and you are holy, then I believe that, and this is one of those places that is a mystery to me. I mean, because Paul doesn't really answer it, except for just to say he's God. And we're not. Yeah. 
and I think in many ways it's God's grace in revealing this to us because you know you can he could just keep us at the little kid's table he could he could have not revealed to us this part of of his his character this part of of his plan in the salvation of humankind and he could have just left chapter 9 out and gone straight to chapter 10 but he didn't he gave us a more full view of him and then but what I would say is don't leave out the rest of the book of Romans I mean look just uh, several verses later we have in chapter 10, he's saying that in 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a very clear statement. So we don't, you know, people start wrestling with, well, if election is unconditional, who will I know who's elected? You know, why should I share the gospel with anybody? Am I elected? Is my neighbor elected? Uh, how about that person? Are they elected? You know, because it has nothing to do, well, just, I mean, the totality of Scripture, but then the book of Romans, too, is showing us that, that yes, unconditional election is there, but, but the gospel is still the gospel. And that's a big question. I want to ask Sam that in just a moment. How, how does somebody that's listening to this right now who's saying, how do I know that I'm elected? How do they know? I want to ask that. But first, one of the things that um, that, I, that I've been reading recently, um, uh, what was it? It was from Francis Chan's book, right? Crazy mm-hmm. Love. Mm-hmm. One of the things that hit me was this. He, he said in the last chapter, what are you doing right now in your life that requires faith? Mm-hmm. You know, because we'll set it up to where it requires the least amount of faith and least about a difficulty. What are you doing in your life that requires you to lean upon God? And here, here's how I want to relate this to doctrine and to Calvinism and the truth uh, truths that we're talking about here. What doctrines do you believe that requires you to have faith? Because I think sometimes what we do is we try to shape it to where it makes enough sense and it fits well enough. I'm not saying don't try to make doctrine make sense. Please don't don't say I'm saying that. I mean, that's systematic theology that's very important. But so many of us will take the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't make sense. Therefore, I'm going to reconstruct it. Take the um, idea of... The incarnation. The incarnation and adjust it. You know, it can't be God. It can't be man. He's got to be one or the other. Or how one man's sufferings in a three-hour span is sufficient to atone for the sins of all who are saved. How, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we can figure these things out, and I'm not saying God, God understands them. I'm not even saying that God could not have given us a mind and more revelation to help us to understand. But I think there are so many things that he says to us, what are you believing that requires faith in me? Mm-hmm. If I tell you something, can you just believe it and trust me that I know what I'm doing? And that's where I'm at with this. Oh, yeah. I, I can distinctly remember when I reached that point. I can remember where I was sitting. It was on a bench outside Dale Hall at the University of Oklahoma campus uh, in the summer of 1971. And I had wrestled with this, and I was immersed in Romans 9. And it finally, I finally came to the point where I said, Lord, I, I only have uh, one of two options here. Either I can uh, close this book, ignore these statements, and insist upon holding to what is making sense rationally to me right now as a fallen sinner, or I can acknowledge you are the potter, I am the clay, you are infinitely wise, I'm a pathetic little sub-microscopic speck on this tiny planet who's trying to fathom your ways and your judgments and your decisions, and I can't, and I'm going to submit uh, in faith 
even though I don't fully understand, I'm going to yield to what you have said so clearly to me in your word and trust uh, through it all that you are just, you are wise, you are fair, you are good, and that nobody goes to hell except those who deserve to, and nobody goes to heaven except by your merciful grace. And it was a, it was a it was the most defining moment aside from my conversion that I've ever had in my Christian life is when I when I was able to reach that point where I said, "Okay, uh, I am the clay, you are the potter, I yield." And we give it all to God at that point. Mm-hmm. Sam, uh somebody's listening. Lots of people are listening. They're saying, "All right, I get you guys. I'm I'm there. I'm wrestling with it." I'm starting to lean in that direction, but now I'm scared because I don't know if I'm the elect. What do we say to him? Well, my first response would say, uh, obviously you care about whether or not you are among the elect. There are a lot of people who don't. They would enter this debate just for the sake of the the uh, the heat and the energy of, an, of a good old-fashioned argument. But if you're sitting there listening to this and you're, and there's obviously a deep concern in your soul, in the sense that you want to be among uh, those whom God has chosen. You want to uh, know that he has set his saving love on you. There's a very simple and it almost will sound simplistic answer uh, to that question. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope, the one who at Calvary died in your place for your sins um, and is that your confidence? Is that your trust? Is uh, Do you trust him now? If you do, I can tell you on the authority of the word of God, you are among the sheep. You are among the chosen. Uh, this is the indication that God has set a saving love on you, that in fact you have come to the point at which you have no other hope, you have no other uh, trust, you put your confidence in nothing other than the saving, atoning work of Jesus on the cross for sinners like you. It's Amen. just that simple. If, if people are looking for some esoteric answer or um, you know they, they want to see writing in the sky or they want to lift up their shirt and hopefully there's a big E tattooed on their belly you know that happened during the night or there's some sort of mystical way in which the reality of election is made known, no, go back to Jesus himself in John 6. Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So my question to you is, have you come to Jesus? Just that simple. Put all the other uh, debates and protests in your mind aside. Have you come in faith to Jesus? If you have, it's because the Father whom he has sent gave you to him and if you have come to him rest assured rejoice in the fact that he will in no wise cast you out election predestination chosen those are some of the key words we've been talking about here i thank you all for joining us in this invitation to calvinism we will continue next week on this subject and uh hopefully uh if you're not uh Coming in our direction, you will uh, uh, we'll pull you a little bit closer next week. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. 
If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.